Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with our awesome sponsors, Megaverse. Right, if you aren't subscribing to this podcast, what is it going to take to get you to subscribe? So many of you consume this content but don't subscribe, and for us, it's so important that you do. If I can ask a favor, please, please subscribe. It will make so much difference to me, to the guys behind the camera, the team, and everybody else, and we will do our best to get better and better guests on the show for you. Today's guest, the founder of London Real, Brian Rose. But not the typical Brian Rose, not the guy that you've come to see over the course of the last few years. This is a humble, a different Brian Rose, a guy that was willing to be open, honest, a guy that was willing to share how he feels about the journey he's been on, the mistakes he's made and the challenges he's faced. It was an incredible honor to talk to him, and I know you are going to enjoy listening to this podcast too. So let's cue the music, get stuck in, and enjoy Brian Rose. Megaverse, the digital frontier of tomorrow. Megaverse stands at the cutting-edge intersection of technology and imagination. It's a virtual realm where the limitless expanse of the digital universe unfolds, offering users unparalleled experiences and interactions. With its advanced Metaverse platform, users can craft unique avatars, forge connections, and even establish their own digital estates. It's more than just virtual reality. Megaverse is an expansive digital civilization teeming with opportunities for both individuals and brands. From immersive concerts to revolutionary retail experiences, Megaverse is redefining the way we engage with the digital world. As we stand on the brink of a new era where the lines between our physical reality and the digital realm blur, Megaverse is poised to lead the charge in this brave new world. Dive in and discover a universe without bounds. This really is the future. Well, he's here in the house. Welcome, Brian Rose. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Wow. So first of all, let's talk about Dubai. I've seen you on social media all over the place in Dubai at the moment. What's your first impression of this place? So I came back, I came here in 2008 when I was a city banker and I stayed at the one and only by the Palm and there was nothing going on but the rent in the marina. And quite frankly, I didn't get it. I think I was looking for local culture and I was like, I don't really get what this place is about. So I didn't come back for 14 years. Came here in 22 and I got a completely different vibe. I was at Jitex, I was hanging out with the crypto bros and I saw, wow, this place has culture, this place has attitude, it has vision. And I was kind of hooked. And now I would say I'm having a proper bromance with Dubai and I'm falling in love. It's one of those places that sucks you in eventually, isn't it? And, uh... Man, I mean, really, I thought I'm here now for a month, so I'm not in conference fever. I don't have events every night. And I thought, you know, maybe it might not be the same. But every single day, my life is like a movie. I meet somebody new, somebody cool, something amazing. I mean, I'm either I'm wrestling tigers or I'm on a four by four or I'm e-foiling or I mean, it's just crazy. I can't make this stuff up and I love it. And none of this happens to me in London. None of this. I'm a different person here and I really like it here. So, yeah. That's an interesting thing to say. You're a different person. Downstairs, when I first asked you this question before we started filming, your body language, I was watching as you responded to it. And it's almost like it made you come alive when I asked you about it. It was a real nice warm energy that you had from the the way that you described it. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just in this, I'm in this 20 something year 
you know, maybe grind in London. I love London and London's given me everything. It gave me fortune and opportunity like no city ever had. New York kicked my ass. London, I've always loved it. It's always empowered me. But I think lately I keep telling myself how much I love it every morning when maybe I don't. And when I come here, I'm just like alive and there's so many things to do. And I forgot like physical activities and people with great ideas and I don't know, I'm just getting kind of hooked and I think I'm becoming different. And mm. I like myself here <laughs> more. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I'm feeling right now. When you when you think about the attraction initially, a lot of people will think about, you know, there's no income tax to pay and there's a benefit from that point of view. But I genuinely think it's a better life to be had living here than living in the UK. Now, granted, some people have to leave their families, but I just believe it's a better quality of life. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I'm not too fixated on the taxes. Even the crime I'm not too fixated on. I just, I guess it's just the ethos. You know, it's funny, Spencer, I always say that um, Dubai is very London real. You know, it seems to embody everything that we've been searching for for the past 13 years, you know, trying to set bodacious goals, trying to hold yourself accountable, trying to become better every single day. I mean, that's what our show's all about. And that's what this city's all about. Long-term visions, you know, ruthless uh ruthless work ethic. And it just feels like that. Everybody here wants to be here. Now you could say some people don't have as favorable circumstances as others, but from the cab driver to the girl serving me ice cream in the mall to the crypto bro, they choose to be here and they want to be here. When I walk around London, oh Jesus, 40% of the people, they don't, do they want to be there? Are they, they're phoning their life in is what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And that energy, I think it just slowly pulls you down. Everybody here I meet gives me good energy. And like, there's something about that. It really, it's taken me to like new levels, kind of, I don't know, energy wise, spiritually. And so I'm just thinking, why would I go back right now? <laughs> well, let's, let's hope you make some new decisions to come and stay longer and spend more time here and maybe make this your home in the future. Right, let's talk about your past. You're a guy that I have been consuming content for an awful long time. And the bit that resonated with me at the very beginning of me being part of the journey of being exposed to you was you were in financial services. You did it for a number of years, just like me. We clearly had both done very well from it, but it just wasn't enough. Me compared to you was a different journey. It just wasn't enough meant I became almost a renegade, a terrorist, a self-sabotaging type of person. I became egotistical, arrogant, obnoxious to some degree as well. And I look back on that person and I wasn't proud of who that person was. And I can blame the industry and I shouldn't, but the world that I lived in made me become a product of that world. What you did was something different because you recognized that it wasn't for you anymore and you started to make steps in the right direction. Can you just take me on that part of the journey, please? Definitely. So in 2010... <laughs> I was a successful city boy. You know, I had started on Wall Street in 93. Um, they recruited me from MIT to be one of their rocket science derivative traders. And for me, it was everything I ever wanted because when I was a kid, I just dreamed of being rich. I don't know, I thought money would buy me happiness. I used to blame the American dream, but I think it's probably a little bit of my fault as well. I just wanted that. And so I was a little capitalist bastard as a kid. I used to sell candy in the back of the bus for 30% profit margins. And my grandpa was a horse trader out of uh, Arizona. And so it's kind of in the blood to be an entrepreneur. Um, and I got to MIT, I was gonna be an engineer. I worked at Ford Motor Company and Aerospace Corporation. I thought, I don't wanna be one of these guys when I'm 50. I mean, these guys are losers, you know, in Dearborn, Michigan with 100,000, you know, engineers. I watched the movie Wall Street. I was able to take classes at the Sloan School of Business and I went and I went 
there you go. I went to Wall Street, started making money, enjoyed it, loved it, came to London to do credit derivatives, the hot new product. And at 40, on paper, I had everything people would want, you know, millions and millions of pounds, you know, that the duplex apartment in Shoreditch, um, you know, driving around in cars. And yet, deep down inside, I was miserable. I was drinking myself to death. I had no family, probably not many friends. That was my life. And I didn't know how to get out of it. And um, I used to work at ICAP PLC and they paid you quarterly bonuses. And I'm an engineer and I was tracking my money and it was going up every quarter and my happiness was like not going up every quarter. <laughs> and so as an engineer, I was like, hmm, this doesn't seem to be working. I've been training martial arts for a long time and I took a meditation course because it seemed to be kind of a parallel thing. Now, back in 2010, there weren't apps, they weren't on YouTube. You really had to go take a course. I spent a thousand pounds for a transcendental meditation course in Islington. And I went there and they played old videotapes of the Maharija and I thought, this is a bunch of nonsense. But I paid a thousand pounds. So I stayed till the end and I went to the ceremony with the piece of the fruit and the napkin they made me bring. And three weeks later, I woke up one day and I thought, what the hell am I doing? Like, Brian is clearly unhappy. Why am I doing this? And about two months later, I walked into my MD and I quit. I quit my job. And that started my journey of starting London Real. Um, and so it was just, I don't know, that realization. you know. And it was hard at first because my identity was wrapped up as I'm a broker in the city and work at ICAP. And at the time, I couldn't say that. And I'd go to a party and I'd be like, well, I guess I'm unemployed. And that's hard at first. Um, at the same time, I was watching Joe Rogan because I was watching the UFC because I was training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And so I knew about his podcast before anybody else did. And I used to watch it on Sundays, three hours when it was on Vimeo. It wasn't even on YouTube yet. And I'd watch him and Aubrey Marcus talk about ayahuasca. And I'd hang out with the coolest dudes on the planet, guys I'd never have a chance of hanging out with. And I, I have to tell you, Spencer, that changed my life. Like it almost completed me in a masculine way. And I thought... I need to do this, you know, but I was terrified. You know, I'm an introvert. I'd never put myself out there. And so I started telling my dad he should start a podcast. And he's like, what are you talking about? Finally, like nine months later, I got the courage to start it with my Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor. Like I needed some backup. And we did the first episode in October 11. And that's how that started, you know. <laughs> take, it, take him back to that time. When we're doing it at the beginning, it feels like we know what we're doing. But when you look back at it, you think to yourself, goodness me, I didn't have a clue. No. Does it fill you with warmth looking back at that, though, because I, of where it took you? Yeah, I always keep the all the episodes up, you know, because I want people to look back and see where it started. You know, you can go watch that old episode. And I've got um, <laughs> I've, I'm wearing a skateboard T-shirt and um, I've got this funny, crazy long hair. And we're literally using webcams that are stuffed in front of our faces and the production is terrible. Um, and I, you see a Brian Rose, a young man, I guess at this point, that's, you know, uncomfortable, but trying to talk about himself, trying to communicate. I don't even know what, I don't even know what it was, Spencer. Like it was never supposed to be a business. Um, I, I didn't even know what it was. It was, I think, just me trying to connect with the world somehow, somehow, or trying to explore who I was as a person. And so, yeah, I looked those early episodes, they're so raw. I mean, nobody would come over to the show. You know, anybody stupid enough to come over to my kitchen, a couple guys from the city. I mean, I remember I asked a homeless person to come on because I had no guests that week and he turned me down. He's like, no, he actually said I did BBC radio one time and I didn't like it. And so <laughs> I, I really said that. So I was desperate in the beginning just to find anybody. It was usually jujitsu guys that were kind of cool that would come by and tell their story. And so, 
yeah, I mean, I, I, I look back on them and they're, they're fun to watch and they're great for other people to see, you know, because I, I teach and it's great to show them, you know, you know, you just start. And I said, you, you, those episodes, like baby pictures, you know, you look back on them later and, you know, people will think they're cute, <laughs> no matter how horrible they are at the time. But you just have to start, you know, and then don't stop. And that was my commitment to the world. I put it out to the universe. I will deliver an episode of London Real every single Sunday. I told all my followers, which was zero people. And that was this pledge I made kind of to the world. And so that's how it started. And that's how it didn't finish. How many episodes did you get in before you realized or kind of knew what you were doing and the direction it was heading? <laughs> how far had you gone before? Then you're like, oh, I'm starting to get this now. You know, Spencer, every New Year's, I used to look myself in the mirror and say, like, what the hell are you doing? You know, I remember we started in October. So probably the one after 14 months in, like, what are you doing? Like, nobody's watching this. You're not making any money. Most people think you're insane. Nobody in the city would talk to me anymore. And then a year later, I'm like, same thing. No one's watching this. There's no business. What are you doing? Like it was uh, three years in a row, I would ask myself that question. Yeah, okay, I was getting a little better. The guests were getting a little bit better, but I wasn't obvious where this was going. And very few people would talk to me about it. My friends and family wouldn't watch it. Um, you know, nobody supports you from your peer group. You have to actually go find your tribe. And so um, it was probably three years, four years until I felt like we had something and maybe it was worth continuing. But in the early days, it was just faith. The one thing that kept me going is that I was becoming a better person. I was happier. I had more friends. I was excited. I was inspired. I didn't have any of that when I was in the city. And so I just would look myself in the mirror and think, okay, he got no money. This isn't really going anywhere, but you are happier and becoming a better person. So let's do one more year. That was I would use to say to myself every single year. Did the, going from being secure financially to then not making any money for a few years must have meant you looked at things or financial things differently. Did you start to kind of wind back where you spent money and where you didn't and live a kind of, not lifestyle of a monk, but a, a, a calmer, more um, sensible lifestyle because of that? Yeah, I always joke that um, the banks financed London Real because that they did basically. So it was all my bonuses that I'd saved up. You know, weirdly enough, I was never super flashy with my money. So like I never bought a Lambo and I actually never bought a crazy property and I would do anything I wanted. I would travel where I wanted, but weirdly enough, I wasn't too flashy. And so when I started London Real, I was also weirdly cognizant that I wasn't going to spunk a lot of money on it. Mm -hmm. And so it was all really basic production. It was all really kept the cost low. But after a few years, still, you got no money coming in. You know, I had a stepdaughter at that point. And so, yeah, it starts to really get your attention after three, four, five, six years. Like, okay, what are we doing here? Because <laughs> you can't live off your savings for that long. You said you had more friends. Those friends, did they get what you were doing and why you were doing it? Or were they, were they friends that were just like, you know what, Brian does his thing. We, uh, we like Brian, and so we'll support it. No, they were my guests. They were um, like members of my academy. They were people I met along the way. They were completely different than any friend I ever had before because they were connecting to me and my passion, and I guess I was becoming a different person. Um, so, I mean, I had a couple hardcore long-term friends, but they really didn't understand what I was doing. And, uh, and so, yeah, I was really connecting with people that were doing that. I had a couple guys that started working for me. I didn't pay them for like six months or a year. And then soon I gave, gave them like a pittance because we had to keep them around. 
So that, I was becoming like human a little bit <laughs> for the first time. And people that haven't worked in the city don't know what I'm talking about, but you know what I'm talking exactly, about. Yeah. You know, in the city, uh, look, I, I used to really slam the city and now I respect the city. You know, you can learn a lot in the city. I tell young men, go work in the city for a few years. You'll learn how to be on time. You'll learn how to be a professional. You'll learn how to work hard and you can make money there, but you, you sacrifice something. You, mm -hmm. you do sacrifice creativity. Um, you sacrifice maybe connection. You sacrifice giving something back a little bit. And so I was becoming a new person. That's what I felt. So then we see this journey of London Real start to grow and it grows and it becomes something that becomes literally all day, every day, wherever I am on social media, London Real's there, Brian's there, he's telling me this, he's telling me that, there's this, there's this launch of this product, there's this launch of this service, there's this amazing guest, these phenomenal people with fascinating conversations. It really was something that you wanted to make sure you paid attention to. To me, it seemed like in the UK, it was the only podcast to consume. And that was from this American dude as well that was in, was in the UK. Yeah. And so you created a huge amount of success. I know you wanted the success because we all do. But was the success or the, or the line of that success accidental, naive, or was it strategized and planned out? Hmm. I mean... Like I said, I had this commitment I wasn't going to stop. And I have a very obsessive personality, um, maybe addictive personality, which has, you know, almost killed me in the past with drugs, alcohol, you name it. But once I get my, my sights locked on something that I really enjoy, like I just won't let up. So in the early days, I mean, I was in the studio seven days a week. You know, I think about it all the time. And I always want to do it better than the previous week. And so that was me just like, how, how far can I push this? What more can we do? Um, yeah, how big can we get? Um, and I guess we started to get some traction. You never know how many people are watching your show, I guess, until maybe people start starting stopping you in the street. I mean, all it is, it's just like Atomic Habits. One of my guests on the show was James Clear. It's just trying to do something a little bit better each day. And then after a while, the content adds up and you become better at certain things. But like, also, I'm very harsh on myself. Like, I never considered myself a success. I don't, I mean, I don't still, I don't really don't think London Real is a tremendous success. You know, for me, it's, it's something I do. It's part of this journey. I want it to get better, but yeah, I mean, did I engineer it? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I just tried to make it better every day. Understood. I don't know if that answers your question. It does answer the question. Then and have fun. I always tell uh, people if there's a, if, if I'm ever looking at someone in the guest chair and I'm not enjoying myself, then I'm going back to the city. And so everything I do, I want to do. I want to talk to the guest. And that's what's different about my show than BBC or any other BS from the mainstream media is that I want them there. And that means I'm passionate. People say, why don't you have more guests that are women? And why don't you have more of this? It's like, look, it's my show. I'm going to have someone on that I want. And if I want to make a documentary film, it's because I want to do it. If I want to teach a course, it's because I want to do it. If I want to invest in a blockchain company, it's because I want to do it. And that's it. And so for me, I mean, honestly, London Real is like my crucible. It's like my atelier. It's where I go to also push myself, create a better version of me, be creative, have fun. It's stressful as hell too. But like for me, it's like, it's not always about the show. The show is a vehicle for my growth, you know? And I would say I am London Real and London Real is me somehow. So it's this weird dance, this weird relationship that we have. It's, and it's not a show. 
And I think people feel that it's not a show. And one thing I'll say to that is that the guests that come in my studio, they change my life forever. And that might be different than a Joe Rogan or a Bette David. I mean, they come in my life. I make documentary movies with them. I go to their castles. I start dressing like them. I do Ironman races with vegan diets. I talk about my heroin overdoses with them. I drink the plant medicine ayahuasca. You know, this is what happens with my life. And so, you know, with me, it's, it's very open what I do. And it's not, it's not just a show. It's not just a business for me. Yeah. Does that sound familiar? Is that you? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that means you're doing it right, in my opinion. That's and that's the beautiful. That's, that's exactly. That's the beautiful thing about. You nearly made me cry saying that. I mean, this is independent media. This is something we don't understand. You know, Marsh McLuhan said the medium is the message. This is a new medium. It's never been done before, and so it's not going to look like a TV show or a movie or any of that stuff or print. I mean, this is literally. It's it's interactive. It's our lives. It's connection on this weird scale, and so yeah, we're living our lives through this and connecting with people, and then that feedback comes back to us. It's like, it's very intense. I, 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 you couldn't have described it better. I watch people that go on TV and be interviewed, and it's like three minutes. And, I, and, I, and I've been on TV and been interviewed, and it's like three minutes, and I'm like, what a waste. Yet we get a chance to sit down with someone like I have the pleasure of doing with you today and connecting and learning about your story and finding out things that I personally want to know about you. Not what some, some you know, media team or some PR team have said to me or my social media team has said, get him to answer this question about ayahuasca standing on one leg naked in a bush, you know. It's like, I want to know about stuff. And, I, and, and that for me is where, where the power is because I build those relationships with people. So thank you for saying what you said. You've just confirmed all of my thoughts and feelings. As we go through this journey, you've had some incredible guests on the show, some, some, some people that have been moving, some people that are full of wisdom and knowledge in some fascinating areas. Who do you look back on and say, because I've got some people that I resonated with that you really resonated with, but who do you look back on and you go, that, that person was a real moment for me. He really made me stop and really think. So one thing that we started doing with the show about four or five years in is we started making documentary films. So we've made six and those usually revolve around someone that has had that effect on me, right? Someone who pushed buttons in me and also wanted to maybe continue our relationship. So the first guy would be Dorian Yates, mm -hmm. six time Mr. Olympia, sat down and talked to us, his first real media piece ever. He used to refuse to go to the BBC because they wanted him to put on his swimsuit. And he sat down and for 90 minutes blew everybody away. How can a guy with a bunch of muscles be intelligent? How can he talk about the bigger picture? How can he see things we don't see? How can he talk about DMT? Amazing. And I had further conversations with Dorian. He invited me down to Spain and we ended up making our first very bad documentary film with Dorian. And I did yoga with him, go figure. Um, I smoked weed with him, oh, terrible. Um, <laughs> and, and so Dorian was one of those. The next one was Ido Portal, a guy that was into human movement who trained Conor McGregor. He invited me to come to Israel and train with him. I'd never been to Israel. And he invited me in his studio. To this day, I don't think he's ever allowed cameras inside the studio except for ours. So wow. he trusted me. I went to Jerusalem, I went to the Wailing Wall. It was all in the movie. So that was amazing. The next one was Dan Pena, the trillion dollar man, the high performance coach who has a castle in Scotland who wears three piece suits, who reminds you of your grandpa, who yells at you, but deep down inside, you know he's right, you know? 
and I've had a long relationship with Dan Pena. I both equally love and hate Dan Pena. We're currently not talking. That might change. I don't know. But Pena has been one of them as well. Uh, John Joseph, he's a hardcore punk rocker from the, the band The Cro-Mags. And in the 90s, he was one of the hardest rockers out there, had a crack habit as well. And he's been sober now for a while. And he challenged me to run an Ironman race on a vegan diet. And I did that. I went to New York City. And John had been very open about his sexual abuse. And to have a hardcore rocker talk about that in a book made me comfortable sitting down with him at an Airbnb in New York City and speaking for the first time ever about my heroin overdose in 2001. I'd never told my wife about this. I hadn't spoke about it in 16 years. Three people in the world knew about it. And I felt like I could talk to John about it. And then the whole world knew, and I was terrified for that to get out. So these are the kind of people that have these effects on me. And then I go a little bit deeper, you know, with them. Um, of course, you know, a David Goggins, a US Navy SEAL, a Jocko Willink, a US Navy SEAL. You know, if I'm honest, Spencer, and I really look at this show, is this just Brian's search for a male figure in his life? Is that not what we're all looking for as men? Whether my dad was that or not, maybe that is, if I'm really honest. Look at what I'm doing here, you know? Also, a lot of my, my mental connections and learning are through physical acts, you know? I, I look at that too. I mean, I'm doing human movement. I'm doing an Ironman race. That's surprising to me because I didn't have a whole history of using my body as much. But that search for that male figure, I mean, you know, any, any analyst would look at me and say, that's what you're doing. Um, and I think maybe we're all doing that. Maybe women are looking for that equivalent as well. But I, I look and I crave these role models that teach me how to be a better man, I think. Mm. I mean, if I really look at it, that's kind of what I'm doing here. Mm. So these are some of the people that come to my mind. I mean, the Dennis McKenna, you know, Psychonaut brought me down to Costa Rica to drink the plant medicine, and, and I learned a lot from him. Um, and then, of course, you know, I guess, you know, you could even go to David Icke and uh, the journey that he took me through, um, you know, with, with all the stuff that happened in 2020. So those are the ones that come to mind. Mm. I always say um, I don't have any favorite children and I don't have any favorite guests, but we all know that's a lie. <laughs> so uh, those are the ones that come to mind. Uh, but, you know, Eddie Hall, the strongest man in the world, mm -hmm. two hours in, he's crying. You know, that's when I know I'm doing my job. And here's a guy the strongest man in the world, the toughest guy in the world. And he's talking to me, and I hope I won't cry here, but he's saying that on his, his grandma's deathbed, he promises her he's gonna become the world's strongest man. And she dies, and he goes to the gym. And so, you know, it's moments like that where I have Nigel Ben, the dark destroyer, one of the scariest mofos out there who was just nasty. That's the only reason he was good. Maybe didn't have the technique, he is in my studio two hours in crying. He's crying so much, Spencer, I literally have to put my hand on his knee because he's crying for like a minute, two minutes about how he found God and stopped becoming a bastard to his wife and all those things. So like people joke at me and say, oh, so you're trying to get people to cry. And I'm like, no, but that is a successful podcast, I think. And so if I have a moment like that, I, I feel a human connection, which is hard to find these days. I feel like I've done my job. And I think someone's gonna watch my episodes a thousand years from now, I do. And someone's gonna watch that and it's gonna mean something to them. One more thing, if that person dies the next day, I believe that I have captured the essence of their soul. I had a guest die before they came on the show, three days before Kimbo Slice, a very famous mixed martial artist, yeah, died yeah. three days before he was gonna come on. And I thought that's a shame because with my six camera high definition in two and a half hours, I could have captured his soul <clears throat> to where anybody who watched that 
10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, you wouldn't know everything about Kimbo, but you wouldn't know who he was as a person. Mm. And that's what I'm trying to do when I go to record an episode. And you know, it's hard. It's live. You've never met the person before. Sometimes they're uncomfortable. Sometimes famous people are uncomfortable. And my job is to craft this beautiful hero's journey, almost like a Hollywood movie of the conversation, the beginning, the start, what do they want? What was the hard parts? And then how do we wrap it all up at the end where it's this beautiful package? That's what I'm trying to do every time. Sometimes I'm somewhat successful, sometimes I'm not, but like that's what I'm trying to do. And when I'm there and I do that, I mean, I feel amazing. Maybe that's my flow state. And then I, I don't want anything more. I mean, I really, I used to get really connected to my guests, I'm probably a bit better now, but that's what I'm striving to do. So I've, I've seen this show grow and grow and grow. We've had these fantastic guests and thank you for sharing these people that have been profound to you. Dan Pena was the first time I was exposed to Dan Pena was through you. Okay. And you're right. A lot of what he says is real. And I watched the video of when you went up to the castle and you stay there and you're on the course. And obviously I've watched the subsequent videos of him screaming at people, you know, you're a pussy, you're this, you're that, if you don't do things. I want to know, apart from making you change what you wear, okay, I want to know what impact he had on you, okay, for the good. So Dan Pena came on my show in 2014 in April. He always jokes that I released that episode on Easter Sunday and he had to compete with the Lord, right? <laughs> he said I was stacking the deck against him. And I told him at the end of the show, my, my people are gonna love you or hate you, one or the other. I actually resisted him coming on the show for months. He was emailing me, trying to come on, and I thought, what do I want this guy on? He embodies everything I ran away from in the city, right? Money, being defined by money, arrogance, everything. But as you know, as a, as a broadcaster, sometimes you need a guest. And so I shipped him in, he came in and, you know, we had the very first broadcast with Dan, 10 years old, that one. And towards the end of the show, he's like, is this it, Brian? Is this, is this what you're going to do the rest of your life? He started needling me, right? Kind of getting in my face a little bit. And, uh, which was good. And afterwards he stayed in touch with me. And I have these long emails from Dan. They're all done in, um, capital red letters. Really? That's real. And in the movie we make of him, that's the way he sends emails, and he does. And, I, and their page is long. And he was actually being really, really generous uh, and trying to help me. And he kept pushing me and said, Brian, I can help you. I want to help you, but you got to come to the castle. And I was resisting and resisting, but I was actually really looking for direction then. In 14, I didn't know what the hell we were doing. I couldn't get help from anybody. You know, uh, I was making no money. This wasn't going anywhere. And so I finally went to the castle. And... I told myself that if he pulled one bullshit move on me, then I was walking out the fucking door because he had been to a bulletproof conference the week before and he, he bragged to a few people that he was going to beat me like a rented mule, right? And uh, so I was just like, okay, let's go. So I went up to Scotland on the train. I had to clean out all my suits from the city and find them again because I had to wear a suit and tie every day at his castle. And I was like, what the hell? I remember I was in my closet. I hadn't touched these things for years. Um, I didn't even wear a suit at the end of the city. I wasn't even, I was phoning it in, wearing jeans and stuff. And so I got to his castle expecting that I'd have to be on my guard and that I was going to go at a moment's notice. And he walked down the staircase and I think he had a casual sweater on and I don't know, I just felt right at home. And we started in on the training at the QLA. And I've got to tell you, 
It felt like a wolf pack is what it felt like. Now, Pena can be abrasive, he can be hard, but he can also be fun as hell. And so when he's pushing you, he's also cracking jokes. And over coffee, he's telling stories about stabbing a bear and you know trying to invade Haiti and all the crazy stuff that he's done. And I think it was the third night you have private meetings with Dan. And I just had a revelation that I was not doing enough. Everybody was telling me how great London Real was, but I knew that it wasn't. And I knew I could be much, much, much better. And I walked into his office. I wouldn't even sit down. And I said, Dan, I know what I'm doing wrong. I got to go bigger. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do that. And he always makes fun of me that he couldn't even get a word in edgewise. And just something changed. And I told him, I know what you're doing. You're separating us from the group, just like they do in the army. You're going to make us all uniform. You're going to brainwash me. And then you're going to send me back to the world. I know what your game is. And he's like, okay, Brian. And that's exactly what he did. And it worked. And I got back and I started dressing differently. I don't know why. And I reevaluated everything I was doing. I had a technology show called Silicon Reel. I ended it because it was making me lose focus. I started really holding myself accountable and just started living this like, like this was the most important thing to me ever. And that's what kind of Pena inspired to me. He didn't really tell me to do it. He has a model called QLA where you roll up companies and sell them. I never did that. But being around a guy like that inspires you to do more. So that's what Pena gave me. I pushed back. We got into arguments. We don't talk to each other sometimes. I have dinner with him in a restaurant in London. He's yelling sometimes. His wife Sally's like, keep it, keep it down. And he's like, he can handle it. And then by the end of the night, he gives me some advice. You know, it's a great mentor relationship. But that's what it's been like with Dan. Dan was somebody that, that obviously is very abrasive and people either love or hate. And they don't love or hate quietly, do they? They love or hate very loudly in their, their, their opinions. And as you say, you always need a great guest and that's a great person to have. Most people love him. Most people stop me on the streets. He's the guest, him or Ike. And so he, yeah. you know, he, he resonates with a lot of people. Without doubt. I love it. Well, there, there was a funny joke that he tells you about pregnancy. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. What does he say about pregnancy, about being pregnant, but you're not sure how many times you were fucked? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he says that a lot. Yeah. And I will say, my, you think he's abrasive. I mean, I've had one-on-one -on -one sessions that are just brutal. I mean, just brutal because he just lays into you. But, I mean, why is he doing that? He's spending his own time trying to make me a better person. And I always tell him that he's showing love. Now, he won't accept it. He says, that's not true. I say, look how much you're giving back. I mean, Pena could be mm -hmm. making billions right now. And yet he's spending his life trying to get our sorry asses across the goal line. And so ultimately, it's an expression of love. You know, yeah. not many people have that. And when you look back to your parents who disciplined you, you could see that's love because the act of anything else would be indifference. Yeah. And so I felt that and I needed that. And I need male role models, multiple. And he has been an amazing one. And he changed the course of the show. He really did. And he's not very happy. He wants me to, he also wants me to do the Dan Pena thing. And I don't want to do that. And so he disagrees with my decisions. He said, you could have made a billion dollars by now. Maybe I could have, but I'm on my own journey, which he thinks is just me playing small. So we go around and around and around. But hopefully people look at us and they see, you know, they see a father-son relationship. They see maybe the prodigal son. We are the classic biblical tale of the father and the son. And that's what they see, I think, when they see me mm. in Pena. 
And um, uh, but I watch I watch that body language with the two of you okay. when you're together because I study body language and I watch it and I watch it. And it's like you are sometimes in the moment you're extremely humble. Okay, there's an element sometimes of fear. Then there's the element of fuck you, Dan. Okay, that comes out as well. And it's really interesting watching that dynamic. So it literally is a father with a teenage son, the man coming of age. Okay, with the man with all the wisdom saying that's not how it's going to be, and so they've been pushing back. So I know exactly what you mean there. You you have gone out and you've done some bold things along the way, stuff that people would not do in a million years for a million reasons. London Mayor, I mean, come on. I mean, that's as bold as it gets on a double-decker bus riding around the city. I watched it all and I'm like, this guy's mad. Where did that idea come from? So um, I never really was interested in politics or being a politician. Um, but in 2020, as you know, we had some very interesting times, challenging times, lockdowns, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And London was locked down. Mm -hmm. And so while I was broadcasting and having conversations with Ike about the pandemic, I was also looking at a city that was dying. And I had friends with businesses and wine bars and restaurants. And I take black cabs. I always love black cabs. And I was taking them home at night while I was the only one working in the city, it felt like. And these guys were suicidal. I mean, they were dying. They just spent 65,000 pounds on a brand new electric cab that the mayor told them to buy. And now they were going out of their minds and I would be their only job in a day. And it just made me angry because it was also, I was interviewing scientists that had like the great Barrington declaration that said, we actually don't need to lock down and we don't need to do this and we don't need to do that. And I looked at the mayor and I thought, you're making every decision it's, it's not in the interest of London, you know? London was built on business. London, you know, was built on reason. <laughs> London was built on science. And it just made me angry. And I looked at the conservative candidate, Sean Bailey, and he, I just thought he was a joke. And I was done with the broadcast about COVID. I had had enough of it, you know? I talked about it for four and five months. And I just didn't want to keep talking about, you know, vaccines and masks. I'd kind of done it. And the election was coming up and I looked at my chief of staff and I said, why don't we run? You know, why don't we run? And I love London. I can't emphasize how much I love London. I've been a citizen since 2007. My children were born there. I plan on being buried in that city. And I just thought, you are ruining my city and I'm going to do something about it. And that's, that's what I thought. And probably because of Pena, I got a different relationship with risk. So Pena encourages me to take risk. I'm an engineer by training, which means I minimize risk mm -hmm. because otherwise the planes fall out of the sky and the bridges fall down. And so I have a tendency to play too conservative. And so now what I do, or I try to do every year, is engineer massive amounts of risk in my life. And so when I do that, I have success. Now, of course, I have some failures, but they're never as bad as you think they're going to be. And so this was my way of doing that, <laughs> of engineering some risk. I had no idea what was going to come. Uh, I had no idea how much it was going to cost, um, but we did it. And yeah, we did it. That experience, you say you know, no idea how much it was going to cost. So clearly it cost a lot, lot more than you thought it was going to cost. Yes. I won't ask you the number. The, the experience itself, though, when you got to the other side of it, how did you feel? I mean, we spent seven months running to be mayor of London. Mm -hmm. Most campaigns spend three weeks you know, they're very short, as are most elections in the UK, because they're usually, you know, they're usually, except for mayors every four years, they're usually, you know, decided on a dime and, and they're run. 
we believed, I wanted to win and I wanted to do it seriously. And so we believed we had to start early in order to get our message out. We believed our social channels would be a huge advantage and that maybe for the first time in history, and this will happen, you can go directly to the voter and not have to go through a party or through the mainstream media, which is typically how you have to get a vote. There will be a time one day where you can go direct to the voter, they'll see you, they'll see your policies and they'll vote. And we thought it was that time, it wasn't. Um, we were gonna be an independent candidate because of me and the fact the parties weren't gonna take it. And so seven months, millions of pounds, massive amounts of stress, um, lots of details uh, to run for office. Um, we dropped leaflets, we got arrested by the police, we had a battle bus, which those things don't exist in America, but in the Brit, it was cool. I, I saw it. It was amazing. My, my boys, you know, they just think it's normal to have a bus with your, your face on the side of it. They're like, when are we going back on the bus? Um, the funny thing is we got arrested one time and I was walking down the street and the Metropolitan Police surrounded us. They'd been following me for two days. And um, my cameraman got it all on camera. And so the police officer's there and I was walking down the street doing a, a, a iPhone selfie. And he said, you're violating the, law, the COVID laws. I'm like, I'm alone on a street talking to a phone. He said, you're not allowed to campaign. I was like, what do you mean I can't campaign? So it was a bit funny. And at one point he says, I need some ID. And I didn't think this was funny until later I looked at the YouTube comments because behind me, there's a massive bus with my face on it. And it says, Brian Rose for mayor. <laughs> so. Uh, again, the internet always wins. Um, look, not winning, it, it hurt. That night was hard. They brought us all down to City Hall. They stuck us all in the same room with no food or no water for three hours. So here I am with Lawrence Fox, who was drunk, um, Sean Bailey, the, all the other candidates, Count Binface, one of the YouTubers who handed me a bottle of urine because a video came out of me drinking my own urine. They thought that was funny. Um, and they all, we, all, we all were in there for like three or four hours. Of course, Sadiq was upstairs in his office. And uh, it was just the weirdest scenario. And then we walked up, we got the vote count. And um, yeah, it sucked, you know, it really sucked. Um, I'm so, I'm, look, I learned a ton. Um, I'm glad I did it. I was just frustrated that we didn't have a better result. And I, I really, we, we really went all in on it, you know, and I-, I what, what, what hurt, losing or thinking about what people thought about you? No, it wasn't what people thought about me. Um, I mean, first of all, you know, there's 9 million people in that city and I, I went to every single borough twice on that bus. And I, I mean, I know this sounds silly, but I used to meditate on all of the pain of all the people in the city because I went deep on knife crime and housing and transportation and business. And I went to talk to everybody and I saw all the problems and I met with the knife groups. And I mean, there's just a lot of pain in that city. And I was like thinking about it every night. and. People think it's like an egotistic thing to run for office. Like, in my opinion, it's the absolute opposite because it's so ego destroying. Like they're ripping you apart and ripping you down. I mean, in Britain, you know, ripping politicians apart, they do it for sport. It's just what they do. And so um, I was being ripped apart and my family used to just, you know, read all the comments and read it. And I'd be like, don't read that. You know, I don't care, but they care. And so I struggled with it. And then I struggled in the end that we just didn't do very well. I mean, I think we came in fifth place or sixth place or something. And it was just, I don't know. I just thought it was a poor showing and I felt kind of defeated. I hadn't felt defeated in a while. And I felt pretty down for a couple days. <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's what it was like. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you did it though. I did and, it. And that's what... 99.9999% of the population didn't do and 99.99% of the people that think they should didn't do either. 
you did it. I did it, and I learned a ton. And I mean, we were, you know, we were, had a four page spread in the Evening Standard, and I went on media and I was attacked ruthlessly. I had to do media training. We called it the dojo every week, where it was like going in and sparring. Because just kind of because I'm in media, it doesn't mean you can handle political media, because they're going to come at you from every single angle. They're going to try to bring up everything. I had a guy that showed up to my bus with like a pole microphone and was pushing me with a pole and asking the nastiest things, and he was asking everybody that walked by on the street. Do you know all these bad things about Ryan Rose? It was in Camden. And most of them were like, no, I watch his show. I really like it. <laughs> but like just, you know, and the British media is the most ruthless in the world. And um, just to be experienced with that and just trying to dig up every bad thing about you to try to rip you down, you know, it's 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 a sobering thing. But I'm really glad I did it. Um, it was just hard and the result wasn't the best. But a lot of people, you know, got something from that. And um, I got closer to the city. I met some amazing people. Um, and I learned a lot about politics. Very hard to break the two-party system. Mm. And the media is complicit in the whole thing. At one point, the bookies had me in number two for many months. But I wasn't invited to a debate of six people. Multiple debates. I wasn't invited. It's all just kind of complicit. And it goes round and round. And it's the illusion of choice. We see it all the time. And maybe that's why I like Dubai as well. <laughs> <laughs> There's no choice. <laughs> yeah, something do, about that. Do as you tell. <laughs> then as your journey continues, various experiences you have along the way, one that I was very fond of with you with a bit of breakdancing that you got into as a hobby and obviously we're similar ages and experienced similar things in our time. And I'll just probably skip over that. Then a time came where I feared that you were ready to take on the world and didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Whereas I thought as you started to do this, and I talk about David Icke, I talk about lockdown conversations. You were saying what lots of people were thinking, by the way. But the fact that you were willing to be brazen enough to stand up and stand behind that, I felt that was going to cause you a problem when it happened. And it did. And it caused you a problem in my mind and this is where I want to understand Brian as a human being in, in, a, in a really big way. Because if I had gone on the journey you'd gone on, created the success you had, and be proud, not always winning, but be proud of the things that you'd done along the way. And then somebody had the power to rip the rug from under you. I'm not sure how I would have coped. So how did you cope? I assume you're referring to 2020 struggles with YouTube being deplatformed, yeah, deplatformed. Thing. Yeah. yeah. So, look, when the pandemic hit, I was just as bewildered and terrified as everybody else. I didn't know what the hell was happening. You know, it was March 18th, uh, I think, in London when I first had David Icke on the show um, because I couldn't really figure out what was going on. And if anybody might have some answers, I thought it might be David. Mm -hmm. I'd had him on the show a few few times before. Years before that, I wouldn't have him on the show because I thought he was out of his mind. But I thought I would have him on. I actually didn't tell anybody he was coming on that show because I was a little bit in fear that there might be some consequences. So that first show was done, I think, not live. I think we just had him. And much to my surprise, that show started circulating around the world. When you get text messages to friends from high school you haven't heard from in 20 years mm -hmm. asking you about an episode, something's happening. And that's what was happening. I was getting these weird messages from people saying, I saw this, I saw this. Are you doing this? What's going on? And it just shows you the, the, the heightened sense of fear and then how much that, that those conversations were affecting people. The big one was April 6th. I invited David back 
And again, a lot of my, even my employees didn't want him back. A lot of people were telling me not to bring him back. Um, again, everybody was really triggered by this. Uh, a lot of people thought we were doing something bad, you know, putting bad information out there. And I had David on the show April 6th, and I told everybody he was coming, and we streamed it live. And I kind of knew I was getting myself into some more trouble. I recorded a vlog before he got there, and I said, look, I'm not into conspiracy theories. And by the way, I'm not. People think I'm a conspiracy theorist. I'm not. I've got more important things to do. I save those conspiracy theories for my guests. They do those. And I recorded a vlog saying, you know what? I feel a little weird. I don't know if this is going to happen. I don't know if David's going to make it because it felt, you know, edgy. And David came on that show, second largest YouTube live stream in the world, 65,000 people concurrently watching it. The biggest live stream was Trump's coronavirus briefing that night from DC. And that episode would have been gone on to be the most watched video podcast in human history. It would have beat Elon Musk, Joe Rogan numbers because the previous one was like 10 million. This was four times as big. It would have been watched 40 million times. And 20 minutes later, YouTube took the video down and banned it. Now, I had been broadcasting for nine years. That had never happened once. And Had you ever had a warning or a ban? Never, never. Nothing. Never a strike, never a warning, nothing. And my first reaction, Spencer, was to upload the video again. And my next reaction was to publish a vlog saying how pissed off I was. And Alex Jones had me on his show, and he's like, Brian, where did you find the courage to fight back? And um, love, <laughs> love Alex. And um, it wasn't that. It was this visceral reaction of, fuck you guys, that's not okay. And I don't know if it's because I'm from America and it's the First Amendment or it's just, I don't know, but it just made me angry. Like, they can't do this. We are two guys having a conversation. David wasn't inciting violence. I mean, this is a 67-year-old man talking about some ideas. Like, why is that? How can you take that down? And it just made me angry. And so that was my first reaction. And all I could do was just push back. And again, we've chronicled all this in our new movie. It's called We Will Not Be Silenced. And you can see all the vlogs behind the scene. And we made this movie three years later. And I get to even see me. And it's really interesting to see me reacting with these vlogs, walking down the canal in London. And mm. it just, I don't know, it just made me angry that we couldn't do, talk about these ideas. And then I had conversations with YouTube. And we were a partner at YouTube. I had been down to the offices. I had been to their studios. And now I'm having conversations. And they're being like, you can't say this. I'm like, why? Oh, because he said the virus isn't real. I'm like, that's not what he said. What he said is a very nuanced point that took him six minutes to articulate. Oh, you can't say anything that violates what the WHO is saying. And I was like, okay. The WHO actually first said not to wear masks. And I said, the, the governor of New York just said to wear masks. So is he censored? And they were like, oh, well, well, well. It just went on and on. And so I don't know. For me, Spencer, this just wasn't a choice. And so oh, what are they? Some things are worth fighting for. Some things are worth dying for. And for me, it wasn't a choice. Now, people could watch this as maybe a train wreck in slow motion because I guess I, I guess I – sacrificed and ruined everything I had built. Uh, but for me, it wasn't a choice. And during that period, I started getting connected with some of the most incredible people in the world. You know, Dokovic from Wimbledon was DMing me, uh, Premier League footballers, uh, world champion boxers, uh, supermodels saying, keep going, Brian, keep going, keep going, Brian. So while I had a litany of hate and a litany of censorship and Ofcom and all these people trying to stop me, and PayPal taking me taking me down, LinkedIn, Dropbox, all banning me. At the same time, I connected with a whole group of people that were like my tribe. And so I don't regret anything I did that year. I was worried. I didn't know it would take them three years to deplatform us. Um, and it was stressful, but I felt like I was doing the right thing. And I felt called. I felt empowered somehow. 
And somehow I felt all this energy from around the world pushing me on. I didn't miss a day of work in 2020. I was doing burpees in the stairwell because all the gyms were closed. We broadcast not twice a week, three times a week. And I had some amazing guests on, including Bobby Kennedy, who's now running for president, who convinced me not to take the vaccine. You know, And I wasn't convinced until I talked to him. And so we put out all of these conversations. So I guess to you, it looked like I was making a big mistake. Well, it looked like Armageddon is what it looked like because the, because you have to remember I'm 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 the armchair viewer and the fan of the show yeah and so and and obviously being a podcaster myself I look at your numbers and I'm like right I want to get those numbers okay they're good I look at the format of the show I look at the questions you ask so I'm really into it like like probably more than just your average listener so I'm like that I mean there's got to be an outcome that works if you're going to be you're prepared to lose everything and most people aren't prepared to lose everything and in essence you lost in that moment all those years of hard work did i though did well I, this is the question the thing, isn't it yeah i don't know i mean now i walk around dubai 90 percent of the people that come up to me say thank you for what you did in 2020 you know and if you talk about connection impact hell if you even want to talk about brand it probably got its biggest push that year and there were a lot of bad consequences. Yes. <laughs> but then we have people that kind of like pick on you and go for you. We have um, our, our boy at Coffeezilla. Yeah, he has a lot of videos about me, doesn't he? He seems to, I, I'm secretly as a fan, I'm sure, but he, he, he I, I see these types and I'd like to know what your thoughts are on that kind of stuff. Um, I'm, I'm somebody that believes if you haven't got something nice to say, then don't say anything at all. But I also understand that, there, that he, he's creating content for his audience and for his following. What do you make of what he said, why he said it, and, and what kind of impact did it have on you personally as a human? So I have not watched his videos. I don't read hate comments. I just don't. Uh, for me, I'm quite a nihilistic person, Spencer. So if I start engaging in that, then I'm just going to be like, well, what the fuck's the point? And fuck you all. And I don't want to go back to that negative vibes because I like being the person that I've created, <laughs> which is like, okay, I'm doing this for the people that want this out there. So I can go nihilistic real quick and that's not good for anybody. Um, so, but, but, but I hear about it, you know, and sometimes when people will say, well, he's kind of saying this or my team will say it's like this. He started going after us, I think early on in 2020. Mm -hmm. and, I, and when he was still new, I mean, before he got, I think, all his fancy cameras and stuff like that in his <laughs> audience. And um, I think he was saying that, like, we weren't, we had, like, YouTube wasn't threatening us. And I don't know, like, things that are really interesting because if you watch the movie now, it's clearly that they were. Um, you know, I've had Grant Cardone on my show before, and I quite like Grant and his wife. And I've got to know Grant pretty well. And, you know, he was on my show 10 minutes in. He's talking about how he used to be a meth head and he was almost dead. And I really connected with his honesty. And he always says that um, criticism is a sign of success, I want more. And he also believes that like hate is just love that's kind of been garbled in transmission, you know? And so someone's clearly paying attention to you. I think at the time it was, it was a smart business move to attack us because we were getting famous. And so I think he was making videos about us and that got him views and got him all of that good stuff. For me, same, same with the mayor, I was just like, I'm focusing on where I'm going, that's it. And it's my show and I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing. So now look, during the mayor campaign, people had, why do you have David Icahn? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? I had to kind of answer their questions, but I was just like, I believe in freedom of speech, period. I believe you're an adult and you can choose 
to put ideas in your head. You have sovereignty over your own brain and your body. I don't think there are dangerous ideas. I think that's a wrong concept. That implies you're a toddler and the state or the technology company should be your parents. I, I, I vehemently against any of that. Um, so yeah, I mean, honestly, if you don't have critics out there, what the hell are you doing? What are you doing? I'm walking up every day, oh, the sun is shining and the roses smell nice. You're not contributing anything. Great art divides, just like Pena, just like Ike, maybe just like what I do. And I'll take all the hate in the world for the connection I made with all these amazing people in 2020 and for the love I get on the streets four years later in a place like Dubai that I didn't even know were watching my videos. And so, yeah, I don't really care. I don't really think about it. Um, I don't watch it. I just like, I just focus on my North Star and <laughs> just keep going. Now look, look, some feedback is always good. Um, and so do I take feedback? Maybe I try to. Um, but I don't really engage it. I don't read comments. I don't do any of that stuff. My mom said to me once, what you think of me is none of my business. She said, say that again. What you think of me is none of my business. And she made me say it over and over and over again. And I don't care what anyone thinks about me. I really don't. And when but social- we all do. We but all when do social media bit. first started, I think we were in fear of what other people interpreted that information as. So years ago, if somebody wrote something negative about you online, other people thought it was true. And people believe Google more than they believe their mum. So I believe that. But nowadays, I don't believe people look at content that way. I think people see someone having a snipe at someone and they, they, they're more reasonable about the interpretation of it. But you embody that I really don't care about what you think about me mentality because you are so brave to go and do the things that you do. And you may not they may not appear brave. I don't feel brave. But people, people cringe at the thought of doing that themselves, shudder at the thought of doing that themselves. I could never do that. I could never do that. So I see that as courageous. And you know, I'm a content producer just like you. And some of the things you do, I'm like, I wish I had that courage. So you may not see it, you may not see it as courage, it's just you doing you and, and all, all praise to you for that. But for me, I think you're very bold and you're very courageous. The Coffeezilla thing I find really interesting. And the reason I find it interesting is that most people have never heard of Coffeezilla. So like you not consuming the content, most people haven't consumed the content either. They don't even know it exists. And so when we get wrapped up about, you know, these people have had an, uh, attacked us or these people have sniped at us, the fact is who's consuming that content anyway? Yeah, it's a very good point. It's a specific type of person that likes to resonate with that narrative. You got another guy. What's his name? What's the name of that guy? Mike Winnett. Okay. Okay. So Mike Winnett is a guy that for these people that are selling the courses, creating. Do you know what happened to Mike Winnett? So he had a software company. He's from Manchester. Had a software company and sold his company. Him and his three partners sold it. And they got paid the money and were asked to leave the day they paid the money. So there was no like kind of payout period over two years and, you know, transition. It was like, yeah, we're buying it. Here's the cash. Go. So he took his money and he went on courses because he wanted to learn what to do after he sold this business. So he went to, you know, the Grant Cardone, the Gary Vee, the, all of these guys in the personal development space to learn from them. And he's a typical northerner, very cynical type of chap, okay, and was looking for the bad rather than the good. Now, I know because I've been involved in that space, and no matter what you sell online, no matter what course it is, the reason they don't work is you don't do the work. Okay, we know that. Most of the public don't, but we know that. Because there's no way in the world you would create a course or I would create a course that would provide a solution to somebody that didn't work. The only thing that happens is you didn't do the work. 
So whatever it is you spend, your 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 bucks, okay, if you don't put the time, effort and energy into the thing that you've bought, then you're the fool not the person producing it. But he doesn't see it that way. He's like, they're all doing the same thing. They're all just trying to sell you a course. Well, so what? And this is the next thing that I want to talk about. You've got into this crypto world and it's evolved immensely over the years. The vast majority of the population of this world don't get it still. And so they're, they're slowly on a learning journey. But it's now been accepted as an asset class where it wasn't before. We've just had the, the approval of the ETFs that have taken place recently. And so now we're in a place where um, whether it's mainstream or not just yet, it's certainly much closer to mainstream than ever before. Now, of course, we know all of these different opportunities are wildly volatile in many different ways. However, there isn't anything you could have invested in over the last 13 years that would have done better than investing in that. There's just not anything else on the planet that comes close. And I don't care how much you talk about Dubai real estate, it still doesn't come close. Why did you shift and move into this world? Because it wasn't the world that you weren't the person, the crypto person to me. There were other crypto people. You weren't that guy. So how did you evolve into that world? So I lost the race for mayor of London on a Friday night. Yeah. And I was kind of devastated all weekend. And Monday morning I came back and said, what the hell are we going to do now? We needed a new direction. And I had a few friends in the DeFi space and I was kind of keeping an eye on it. And now... I had some time on my hands and I looked at the space and I called up a couple friends and I had some conversations and I looked at the DeFi summer of 2020 that a year earlier where a lot of protocols had exploded and I have a derivatives trading background when I was in Wall Street and for me this reminded me of derivatives it reminded me of that except when I was on Wall Street you had to be one of 10 banks with 30,000 employees and a double A balance sheet to execute these things now this could be done with smart contracts by anybody and I looked at it and I asked a couple of friends and I said, is this actually happening? And they said, yes, it is. And I told my team, they didn't get a break from the mayoral campaign, which is probably why they had heart attacks. I said, we're going all in on this. Next 10 years, we're gonna start an academy. We're gonna have the top 100 crypto guests in the world. And I'm going all in on this. That's just what I decided. Now I had had Max Kaiser on my show 10 years earlier, screaming about Bitcoin. Um, he'd become a good friend. He transacted a Bitcoin at my Thanksgiving dinner table in 2015 with a Goldman trader who also attended. That's a little rude. I got no commission. Um, <laughs> and so I knew Max. I had a guy named Andreas Antonopoulos on my show in 2015, 17, and 19 talking about the future of money, the internet of money. But that's as far as I'd gone. And I just took this opportunity to go all in. And again, it's my show. I can do whatever the hell I want. And so I started having the Michael Saylors of the world who owns $5 billion of Bitcoin, the Yatsu of Animoca Brands who understands the metaverse better than anybody. And they all said yes to me because I had 2.4 million YouTube subscribers and we're going live. And so they're like, yes, yes, yes. So I was literally, I would say, Spencer, I got the best seat in the house because I am in the front row and I get the education. Yep. even if the cameras aren't on. And so I was literally getting the education, providing it to my viewers. I started an academy and started teaching it. They say, if you want to learn something, you teach it. And so we did that and just went all in. Now, most of my audience was probably like, what the hell is going on, right? We definitely didn't have the numbers that we used to. But um, I started going on this journey. One more thing is that for me, crypto represents freedom. And so what I started to learn, the more I talk with people, is that if you don't own your assets, you have no freedom. And if you look at what happened in the Canadian trucker strike, we found that a, a civil action could have ramifications on your 
bank account and what the government would do. And so if you don't actually have property ownership in this world, you have no freedom. And that's why the Americans get a hard time with their guns. The reason they want guns, and I've had like Tim Kennedy on my show, Green Beret, ex-MMA fighter. He's like, we have guns so we can protect our property. We have property so we can ensure our freedom. The government can't take that away from us. The same is true with your digital assets with crypto because your money can be taken away from you. You don't have money. Your bank has the custody of your money. You know this as well as I do. And so for me, the crypto really has a huge freedom element. And if you talk to the Bitcoin maxis like Dan Held and these people, they consider financial freedom even more important than freedom of speech because without financial freedom, freedom of speech is a luxury. And so for me, just coming off of a huge fight and a continued fight for freedom of speech, this was just a natural progression to get into really understanding your money. Also, I'm good friends with people like Robert Kiyosaki, author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, who says schools teach us to be poor, and they do. Mm -hmm. Most people have no financial education. They're conned into the fact that they need to trust guys like us to run their money, and they're too stupid to understand money. Crypto is the way for the first time in your life to actually have a relationship with your money. And so I teach my students you know, how they can get yield. I teach them about liquidity. I teach them about options all through the, the, through crypto. And that's what we've been doing for three years. I love it. I love the energy of the community. I love the creativity. Um, it's volatile as hell. No human can comprehend the volatility of crypto. We are not built to, to even understand or trade these things. You should not try to day, day trade this stuff. You'll get taken to the cleaners. Do you teach people or do you teach people to use your platform? I teach people the basics of how to navigate the crypto ecosystem. I don't teach them how to trade. So I don't they, tell so them what to buy. I teach them the fundamentals. They watch the Bitcoin white paper. They get hot wallets. They get cold wallets. And they execute everything on the DeFi protocol so they understand. I teach them what a stop loss is. I teach them the basics. And I get them to try it with tiny amounts like $50. Because without doing it, you're not going to understand it. And that's what I get them to do because you have to understand this space because it is the future in my opinion. Where are you making your money? We've always made our money through course sales. That's what London Real's always done, which meant when YouTube started getting funny with Miss, I didn't care because the, I mean, the, the money from YouTube was always tiny. So we started an academy about five years in, uh, thank God, because that's how London Real became kind of a business, kind of. Um, and we used to teach podcasting and business. Well, my wife is a client. So. I know, amazing to hear that. <laughs> and so um, I was actually really good at teaching on Zoom. We'd been using Zoom for six years before COVID and creating communities remotely. And I always teach live. So we've been doing this for years. I graduated 5,000 students. So when we could do this course, I knew exactly how to do it. And we got amazing engagement, amazing people. It's a high price point. So I get serious people that will complete the course. And I started getting this amazing community around the world. So we started doing that, teaching advanced courses, and then we started doing some investments. So that's kind of what we do. That's kind of our revenue model. And it allows, I have no advertisers, so nobody tells me what to do because an advertiser will always tell you what to do. Uh, I clearly don't like being told what to do. Um, when people try to censor me, it doesn't work. That's why it's funny when people try to criticize me. It's like, look, bro, YouTube threatened to take away my channel and then took away my channel. And I'm still not gonna change what I'm doing. So your critique or criticism or attempt to censor me is never going to work. And so I can do whatever the hell I want to do um, and get people to learn with me. And now I love the space. I love investing. And for me, it represents the future and freedom all in one. Okay, I'm going to be really honest with you right now. Please. Okay. Alex and I were talking before you came today. And Alex is a big crypto geek, whatever you want to call him, um, and has been now for some years. And I'm, I've been a fan of your stuff for years. And Alex said to me, 
what, what's going on with Brian? Because, and I said to him, what do you mean by that? He said, well, he used to be brilliant. He used to be fantastic. You know those people he used to interview? Where's that all gone? What's happened now? Look at his audience numbers. What's happened to Brian? And I was worried, okay, that you might have lost it. Gen genuinely. I'm like, has this guy lost it? Is he? I, 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 I was trying to formulate what I thought you were up to, okay, that, uh, on what path you were on, just so that I could find it in my, you, know, you do with you, and it's nothing to do with me, but just so that I could comprehend it. And the person I'm sitting in front of right now is not the person I thought I would. Okay? I mean that sincerely. You're clearly very smart. You're clearly very courageous. And you don't give a flying fanny's fuck what other people think of you. And I really, really respect that because I think that's really brave. And to me, genuinely to me, you are... 10 times, if not 50 times better sat here with me right now than anybody I've ever consumed online. And I want to say thank you for that because genuinely, it's absolutely a pleasure sitting talking to someone like you. Wow. I, uh, I didn't see that coming. I was hoping. I was hoping to go for you because I wanted the old Brian. What is the old Brian? You know, I, I know, it's, I know, it sounds and, nuts. And look, I, I actually really appreciate this feedback. I, look, I think at the end of the day, I'm just on my own journey, you know. And the show and everybody else is is kind of along for the ride. And so it's always been that, you know. It used to be the tagline: "It's about the journey." Like I'm on my own journey, and I'm doing what I love to do. Do you know what that did? You know, you've said that ten, fifty, hundred thousand times over the years. I've consumed you saying that. I didn't believe it. Okay, I didn't believe it enough because because I'm a podcaster and I'm on my own journey. But okay, I also have a responsibility to others as well, whether it's an internal team that work here or overseas or an audience. But you're not. You're on your effing journey, and that is. I don't think people get that because I certainly didn't, but I really do right now. I appreciate that. I think people don't get it. Um, media bias is real, and the crazy thing is, we're in the media business. And we're both biased, as in we have our own assumptions of someone. And until you sit down with someone, then you find the real person. Um, look, everyone's, everyone's opinion of me, I guess, is right in some way in their mind, although sometimes they're projections of what they're going through. But I guess what I do sometimes doesn't make sense to anybody. And sometimes people say, oh, I wish it was like the old you, or I wish you could interview Joe Dispenza again. And why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? There'll always be someone that wants you to be someone else. For me, I'm just going on my own journey. And I'm so blessed to have something like London Real because it magnifies my journey. You know, it just means I can, I can do it like 10x. And so I bring it along with me. But I am just doing what I want to do and being in the moment and trying not to worry too much about the business and the this and the that. Because like I had that in the city as well. And that made me make terrible decisions for five years, seven years, eight years, right? I didn't want to lose my positions and my bonuses and all that nonsense. But you know, there's a great line from the movie, movie Fight Club where Tyler Durden says, let the chips fall where they may. And I think about that sometimes. And also something Joe Dispenza said, maybe the worst thing that ever happened to me is the best thing that ever happened to me, you know? Look at me being de-platformed from YouTube. That hurt four and a half months ago. I'm not going to lie, man. That sucked. They took all my channels down in about 20 minutes, took my personal channel down, took everything down, and basically said, don't call us. You're gone. 
And it hurt because my whole life is up there. Like all my expression is up there. Everything I've ever done good in this world is up there, right? Everything I've ever done with a selfless aim is there. Everything else was about me and now it's gone. But like, what if, what if this is part of the journey? Like, aren't I supposed to take that and make this into something great? Aren't I supposed to be like Goggins, take that and, and this is my story and like create a better version of me? So like, I'm trying to always look at it that way and just keep it moving, man. Keep it moving. What's next? What do I like? What interests me? What feels good? For three years, my podcast looked like a stupid idea. Maybe for the last three years, me being in crypto looks like a stupid idea, but I don't know. It feels right. And I think I'm going to get to where I want to go with these decisions. So I'm going to keep making them. I will say that I, I agree with you. People have a maybe an impression of me that's, that's uh, sometimes like not good or they think I'm this or I'm that. And I don't necessarily do a great job of explaining who I am sometimes. I'm just out there doing it. So the feedback I get from you is, it's not a surprise. Um, and I don't know what to do about it, you know? I want to share, I want to share this side of you with your audience because your audience need to see this person. Because I don't think they see this person in this context this way as much as, as much as maybe they should. I think you're probably right. Because you're a bloody nice bloke. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. You're not what I thought you were either. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> not at all. You know, not at all. And again, I'm in the media business and I have a media bias about you, which is crazy because like you're nothing like the clips that I saw. You know, you're an introspective, deep thinker, a guy that's looking to try to find something amazing in someone. And I don't know, I think it goes to show all of us that we project a lot of our own BS on people. That's kind of what we do. We kind of project however we're feeling at the time onto someone. And I think that's something we all need to think about and really try to take a step back. And when we constantly are judging people, just to try to think, okay, is that fair or is that just me? <laughs> is that just a reflection of how I'm feeling right now? Because most people that I sit down with a leather chair in for two hours, I end up liking them at the end. I end up connecting with them at the end. Whereas before that, even my own guests, I'm thinking, ah, oh, who is this person? What is this bullshit? Cardone, the night before, I'm like, I don't want this jerk on my show. 10 minutes in, he's getting real. And I'm like, wow, how, how much of a douche was I? Oh, you couldn't <laughs> pick someone more apt. Grant and I have become friends as well. Really? Grant and Elena That's have done amazing. so many wonderful things for some some girls that I know that are trafficked from Bangladesh. They 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 have been one of the biggest revelations of my journey. What they said they would do, they took a lady called Maria Conciusel, they flew her to this 10X growth conference in Las Vegas, they put her on stage and they made everyone give $10 to her, all the thousands of people in there. And, and, and he said, I'll, do, I'll fly them over and I'll put them on the stage, she can tell her story. And he kept his word. He has been every single thing he said he was gonna be, he became. Elena is wonderful too. And so you're right. And I, I, and I, I, I find myself defending him when people go, yeah, Grant Cardone, he's a bit of an asshole. I'm like, you don't know the guy. When you know the guy, you'll realize he's, he's a rock, okay? And he's a fantastic person. So when you say that, I know that you know him too. <laughs> and when I say it, I always know what people are thinking. And I always say it really loud. I love Grant Cardone. He's amazing. And so is his wife. And I'm waiting because I know people are thinking, that guy? Like, because everybody wants to say that guy? And I always say it really strong and loud because... I've been with them. I spent hours with them. And like everything you said is true. So how does that work, Spencer? How can the whole world think he's this kind of superficial jerk off? 
And yet we know by spending even a few hours with them or a few days that it's the opposite, like super solid people, amazing people, inspirational people. That's crazy. That's what's maybe wrong with the world. <laughs> that is crazy, you know? Brian Rose, I can't thank you enough for coming to spend some time with us today on the show. Thank you for coming. I'm so glad I came. Thank you. And uh, thanks for bringing out, you know, the part of me that I'd like other people to see as well. So thank you. Cheers, buddy. Thank <laughs> you.